sure, please, that you have Numbers 21 open in front of you just now. Let us notice together a number of elements that we see in these verses. Now, the first thing we should pay attention to here is the attitude of man towards God. We see here much about the attitude of man toward God. What do I mean? Well, what is it that we're dealing with here? And we've turned to the book of Numbers. What's this? What's Numbers about? Well, primarily, uh, the book of Numbers is concerned with the period of time that the people of Israel spent in the desert. Like you, I'm sure you all know the story by now. Do you not uh, that God has brought his people up out of slavery in Egypt? And they were on the cusp of entering into the promised land in the king. And what did they do? They began to moan and complain. And so what does God do? Does he wipe his people from the face of the earth because of the rebellion against him? No. He sentences them to 40 years wandering the wilderness. And that's the focus in the book of Numbers. Now, what I think we need to focus on as well, what we need to know, is that what you've got in front of you right now in Numbers 21 comes toward the end of that period of time. You see what I mean? In Numbers 21, the 40 years of the wilderness... Has come to an end. And now what's happening? Now the people of God, now they're heading back on their way to Canaan. The 40 years have ended, they're now they're going back to the promised land. So, in light of that, how would you expect, what do you expect to see in Numbers 21? Like maybe even the boys and girls can think about this with me. Like what would, what would you expect to see? The 40 years have ended. And the people of God are now going back. What you, I'm expecting, I'm expecting joy, relief. I'm expecting uh, euphoria. At last, we're going to the promised land. And yet, what do we read in verse 4? The people <laughs> grew impatient on the way. I wonder if you see um, what it is that's happening here. You see, to get to the promised land, the people were supposed to pass through a a place called Edom. And the Edomites were, to put it bluntly, bad guys. And they barred the people of Israel from traveling through their land. So what do the people of Israel have to do? Oh, no. They have to retrace their steps, and they have to go around that hostile territory. And it's something, oh, they grew impatient. It's something you can see that they're not best pleased about now here's the thing don't mistake this for you know being a little bit cheesed off oh no we've got to go around this whole don't think oh they're just a little bit miffed about this because look how verse 5 goes on look at the attitude here I mean aren't you with me when I say verse 5 is an absolutely incredible thing to read look at it they spoke against whom they spoke against God. Now, aren't you with me? Isn't that an incredible thing? Think about what God has done for them in the desert. I mean, what's he? He's provided, you know the stories, don't you? Like he's provided food, he's provided water from the rocks, provided all of this leadership in the desert. Hasn't he? Now, do you notice what we read a moment ago? He's also just delivered them from attack. 
And what are they doing? They're moaning. They're speaking out against God. It's an incredible thing to read. But I think what is most shocking about these people is how they describe God's provision for them. Because I am guessing that there's not a soul in this room just now who doesn't know about the manna in the desert. Even the boys and girls. The boys and girls here, they know how God miraculously provided food for the people. Everyone, you know the story of the manna, don't you? What grace, right? Manna. And look how these people describe it at the end of verse 5. It's an amazing thing. They call the manna miserable food. And I tell you, it's a word that means worthless, detestable food. So let me ask you this as a congregation this morning. When you read this and you get a sense of the people of Israel, Numbers 21, what do you think about their attitude? I mean, seriously, aren't, <laughs> aren't you appalled by the attitude here? Don't you read this and you think, what scum these people are? Don't you, do you think that? You're like, what filth to treat Almighty God with such disdain? Listen to me. What you have before you is a picture of how natural man, a picture of how you treat God if you remain in your unbelief. Because you consider for a moment what God has done for you. You consider what God has done for for natural man. Look at this. We have this wonderful creation to inhabit, don't we? Isn't it absolutely beautiful? And God has given us what he's given us, everything we have needed for life. And God even, think about his love, he gives us relationships to enjoy, doesn't he? And, and he, he gives us love to embrace, and he gives us even art. He gives us music. And, and what is natural man's attitude to these things? We moan and we complain and so forth. But I see you this morning, it's an awful lot worse than that. Because you answer me this. What is natural man's attitude to the manna? You see it, don't you? God has provided for us the bread of life in the person of his son. God has provided us with the bread of life, the manna of the very gospel. And what does man do? What do you do if you remain in your unbelief? Can I tell you? You spit in the face of Almighty God. Friend, if you remain outside of Christ, if you remain in your rebellion, if you remain firm in your unbelief, your attitude, it is no better than the Israel in Numbers 21. By unbelief, we spit in the face of a sovereign, almighty God. Friends, we, we cannot rest there because we see, yes, the attitude of man toward God here, but we also see, secondly, the predicament of man before God, the predicament, because surely as we read this and we sort of beg, pick away at these people's attitude and the rebellion, surely there's a question that we ask and it's this, how then does Almighty God respond to such 
abuse from people? How does he respond to this rebellion? Well, I would ask you to do this. I would ask you to read it with me. One verse, verse 6. In some ways, I'm sure you would say that it is a terrifying verse. What does God do? The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. These bit the people. And many Israelites died. It's a terrifying verse, isn't it? What I think you need to know is how uh, wonderful uh, the language is at this point. You see, instead of uh, venomous snakes, as the NIV has it there, the original actually describes these things, let's wait for this, fiery serpents. Fiery serpents! Do you see what's going on here? Maybe you can imagine the scene with me. So you've got the huge Israelite camp. And what happens? All of a sudden, thousands upon thousands of these, let's call them angry and vicious snakes, you know, that come from everywhere. They swarm into this camp. And, and, and countless of thousands of people are bitten. They're bitten. There's chaos everywhere. Now here's the question. What was the bite like? You see what we're being told? It was a fiery bite. You see what's been told here? That this, this bite was a bite that caused excruciating pain. You know, a pain that sort of surged through these people's body that was killing them from within. It's a fiery bite. Now let me return once again to the unbelieving soul in here. And let me ask you this, friend. Do you see your own predicament in the picture before you in Numbers chapter 21? Because I I want to be as clear as I can about this, that you and me and everyone in this room just now and everyone in this world just now, each of us have been bitten by a snake. You see that? That in the fall of man, what has happened? That the very serpent himself has plunged his fangs into us. That as I stand in front of you just now, speaking like this, that there is the poison of sin. And it is pumping round everyone in here. It is pumping round each of our lives. Do you see that? Now, if you recognize that that is your predicament, I wonder, do you also see the sheer urgency of the matter? Because, again, I'm asking you, what did these people know? They knew this, that unless something miraculous were to happen, that in just a blink of an eye, in just a moment, what was going to happen? They were going to die. You see that? They knew this. They knew that they were facing the wrath and judgment of God upon them. And I ask you, do you not see that that is the same situation for for you. That the poison of sin in your life, it will inevitably, unless there is a working of God, it will inevitably lead in no time at all to you facing a second and most awful death. Friends, you see what we are being shown by Almighty God in number 21? We're not just being 
shown how we treat him because of our sin, we are being shown how that will ultimately end for those who remain in their unbelief. And then thirdly, we see the antidote for man from God. So we're seeing, aren't we, the desperate situation for the people of Israel. This is dire. It doesn't get any darker. But is not what we come to next... The sheer, almost indescribable, glorious grace of God. Just think about these people, they've been so wicked to him. They've consistently in the desert rebelled against him. And what does God do? What does he do? There's snakes, but what does he do? He provides, hallelujah, he provides a cure. Now, you're probably familiar with this story, but ask yourself again, what is the cure? Okay, think about what the cure is. What does God do? He has his people uh, put and place on a very, I imagine that, a very tall pole. He has them place, what is it? A representation of a snake. So there's a symbol put up on the top of this pole. A symbol that provides for all those who will look on it. What? What will they get? They will get life. They will get healing. They will get health. Now, Here's the thing. This morning and here just now, uh, as you and I walk towards, you can maybe imagine it, as we walk towards this tall pole and this representation of a snake, as you and I approach this great symbol that Moses has uh, placed up there, there are a couple of things that I just want to draw your attention to and to highlight about this symbol. Okay, just a couple of things. The first thing I would ask you to do is to note and think about the color of the snake. So, boys and girls, nobody's listening to me. My own children are not listening to me. Boys and girls, here's an easy question for you. It's not a trick question. What color is the snake that you're supposed to be coloring in? What color is the snake? Yours is blue, is it? Okay. The snake, as we know, is bronze. Well, maybe it's bronze. I think more likely, given the language here, that it's actually copper. But it doesn't really matter, as you know, bronze is derived from copper. That doesn't matter so much. What matters is how then, if it's copper or bronze, what matters is how then this snake would have appeared to the people in the camp. I turn that over to you. If you were to describe copper metal, bronze metal, how would you describe it to me? Like what is distinctive about bronze and copper. Like, what sort of metals are these? They are red metals, copper and bronze, aren't they? They're red metal. Now, you maybe look at me just now and you say, but 
what difference does this make? If the snake was made out of red metal, what difference does this make? But I say to you, it would have made all of the difference in the world to the people in that camp. Because in Numbers 19, just a moment ago for the people of God, they had been instructed about purification from sin. I wonder if you noticed it when Adam read it out earlier on. Did you notice what color everything was in that chapter? That purification is said, what color was everything? Everything was red. Did you notice? How did it begin? There was a red heifer that was to be used in purification. It had to be killed. A red heifer. A red cow was to be used. There was red thread that had to be thrown into the fire. Scarlet cord. There was even, see that fire? It even had to be started using a red colored wood. Everything was red. Why? Because as the people now knew red was God's appointed color for atonement. For atonement. Do you see it? Do you see now what the people would recognize looking up at this red speak? They were seeing that God was offering to forgive their sin. They were beginning to see that, wait a minute, even this sin in the desert, even this rebellion, even this turning and speaking against God, even this can be forgiven. And how? Red atonement. How? It could be forgiven through the death and through the sacrifice of someone else. They looked up and they saw it is a bronze snake. It is a red snake. A red snake. But as we look at this symbol just now, there is a second element that we need to observe. Because, I'll try again with the children, shall I? Boys and girls, it's bronze. Alright? But what is it? What was the symbol? Was it a dog? Was it a rabbit? What was the symbol? Nothing. Nothing. It was a snake. It was a bronze snake. Now, I'm asking you simply whether you've thought about that before and considered that before. Do you not see how how strange that is? A snake? I mean, it's strange, first of all, surely, because, well, the last thing that you would expect to cure the bite of a snake is the representation of another snake. But isn't it also strange? Because this is the people of Israel that we are dealing with here, isn't it? And uh, wait a minute, what was a snake to the people of Israel? Think about the garden. I mean, a snake was uh, was the, uh, the the most awful animal, the most cursed of all animals in the world to these people. Because what does it represent to these people? Or maybe you say it represented the devil, but wait, think. What did it represent? It represent to these people sin. To these people, a snake was the very embodiment of sin. Wasn't it? Do you see how strange? Do you see how paradoxical this is? Life being offered by God and how the snake 
But friend, again, allow me to return to the unbelieving soul in here. And I ask you, friend, do you see when you look at this risen up bronze snake, do you see what God Almighty is pointing you to this morning? Do you see in the snake what God has, has done and done for you? Can I, can I speak to you as simply and straightforwardly as I possibly can? God for you in your situation has provided a snake. You see that, don't you? That at Calvary, in the Lord Jesus Christ, Almighty God has provided not this picture of atonement, not a foreshadow of atonement. He's provided for you what? A real, a true, the actual true atonement for sin. And what was the nature of Jesus' death? Would you at least think about this with me? That as Jesus himself was lifted up by the Roman soldiers to what? To a high, tall, wooden pole. What did he become for us? Hmm? What did he become? He became sin for us up there as we gaze on at Calvary. What do we see? We see the very embodiment of sin. Life. Life. How? Because he there... He became sin for his people. Do you therefore see what this means for you? It means the remedy for this predicament we are in the remedy is Christ. The cure for all of this is what? Nothing but the cross. The, <laughs> the antidote is what? It is the atoning blood of Jesus. I wonder, do you doubt that? Do you doubt that Christ is all? Well, what did Jesus himself say in John chapter 3? You know it. Nicodemus comes knocking at his door. And what does he say? What does he say to you? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? Why? So that all who believe in him can receive everlasting life. I wonder, friend, in your unbelief, in your hardness, is the Holy Spirit breaking down the barriers? Do you see that there is in the gospel anti-venom available? And it's only available at the cross. It is only available through the grace, the amazing grace of God. And then we end with a fourth observation in this portion of scripture. What have we seen? We have seen the wicked attitude of man towards God. We have seen, therefore, the predicament that man is in because of his sin. We have seen what God has raised up as a possible cure. So the last thing that we have to concern ourselves with is the response of man uh, towards God. The response of man. Now, isn't this true? We, (laughs) as people, uh, concern ourselves most of the time with absolute rubbish. Isn't that right? We get ourselves all hit up in life about (laughs) the most trivial stuff. 
that's definitely the case in our lives out there. We get ourselves all worked up about just the, the sort of sideline issues. I would suggest, as the minister of a church, that that's even more so the case within the life of the church. That what can happen is that we get distracted by the peripheral stuff, you know, the frivolous stuff, and not the main things. Well, friends, it is, as we end here, not to the inconsequential, but to the absolutely essential things we turn. Because I said at the beginning that we would at some stage look at the path of life this morning. And that's what we say here as we end. And I'm saying to you, if you're not a Christian, that here as we end, you will see, God willing, the way in which you can receive forgiveness for your sin and be saved. Isn't that worth your attention? So what happens here? Okay, you're with me so far. The people of God in the camp, you can see them, they have been bitten. And they know that they're about to die. And they look over and Moses, what's he done? Like Moses has put up this representation of a snake on a pole. So the question is, what do we have to do? Like, what are we to do? How do we appropriate the blessing? How do we appropriate the, the, the life that this snake brings, you see? How do we do it? Well, there's two sides to this. And I would suggest that the first is almost kind of hidden in the text. Because the first thing these people had to do is this. They had to repent of their sin. And did you notice it or not? Well, look what they cry out in verse 7. Have a look at it. They say possibly the two most important words of all. Look at verse 7. The people came to Moses and they said, We sinned. We sinned. And against whom? Against the Lord. Now, I, I, I wonder, do you see what is happening here? Like the turmoil. Is this true for you? The turmoil of their situation and their lives. And also, what they could see now as being the beginnings of judgment and the wrath of God upon them. What's that done? That has led them to a place where they are now genuinely contrite before Almighty God. They're sorry. They at last see it. We have done wrong. We have rebelled against God. We need forgiveness. You see, they repent of their sin. But I said two things. So what is the other side of this? What else do they have to do? They can receive life and health. What do they have to do? Look at verse 8. What do they have to do? The people must look at the snake. They must fix their eyes on the snake. Now, again, you must be aware of the language here. Now, the force of the verb is not... That in the camp, having been bitten, that they can just have a little glance up at the snake and receive health. That is not the force of the verb. The verb here, most often in scripture, it means to look and understand. It means to look and perceive. Most crucially, it means to look and believe. 
Do you see it? Do you see what the people had to do? They had to turn. They had to repent. And they had to fix their eyes upon the snake. And it comes as no surprise to you, I'm sure, how I will end this sermon. Because surely you see there how it is that you can be saved. In fact, I wonder this. Do you see? Do you see what God is doing at this very moment in this room? Like, do you see what God is doing here, right now as I speak to you? What is he doing? Through the preaching of his word, just like in Numbers 21, Almighty God just now is lifting up the Christ, the snake, before your very eyes. Do you see that? In here, right now, the tall wooden pole has been lifted up. And, and what do you need to do to receive that life? What do you need to do? Do you need to live a certain way? Do you need to think a certain way? Do you need to feel a certain thing? None of it! What do you need to do? With an awareness of your sin and your need for God, you need to fix your eyes on Christ. You need to look with the eyes of faith upon that crucified and risen Savior. As I end, I um, implore you to do that. Do not underestimate for even a second your predicament. Like, don't think that, okay, if I leave this, things will sort themselves out spiritually later in life. They won't. They won't. Friends, you must, because of your sin, because of this poison in your life, you must look to Jesus Christ. He is the only way of life. He is the only way of salvation. And him, and him alone, well, you have that burden in your life removed. And him, you know that guilt, that sin, that knowledge, that conscience that you have, that you have done wrong before God. And him, that goes. And it goes forever. Will you not this morning look to Christ? Look to him today and receive not just temporal healing for today. No. Jesus, because of the cross. If you look to him, you receive life. And you receive life evermore. Friends, let us pray.